Welcome everyone to episode 58 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and in today's episode, we're going to West Virginia to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. We'll go over a brief history of the hospital itself, and then go over some of the several hauntings that have been reported inside. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock those doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, also known as the Weston State Hospital, was a psychiatric hospital that was operated from 1864 until 1994 by the government of the state of West Virginia in Weston, West Virginia. Weston State Hospital got its name in 1913, which was used while patients occupied it, but was changed back to its originally commissioned unused name the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum after being reopened as a tourist attraction. Designed by Gothic Revival and Tudor Revival styles by Baltimore architect Richard Andrews, it was constructed from 1858 to 1881. Originally designed to only hold 250 people, it became overcrowded in the 1950s with 2,400 patients. It was forcibly closed in 1994 due to changes in patient treatment. The hospital was bought by Joe Jordan in 2007 and is opened for tours and other events to raise money for its restoration. The hospital's main building is claimed to be one of the largest hand-cut stone masonry buildings in the United States and the second largest hand-cut sandstone building in the world, with the only bigger one being in the Moscow Kremlin. As Weston Hospital main building, it was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1990. In the 19th century, the hospital was authorized by the Virginia General Assembly in the early 1850s as the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Following consultations with Thomas Story Kirkbride, then superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane, a building in the Kirkbride Plan was designed in the Gothic Revival by Richard Snowden, an architect from Baltimore, whose other commissions included the Maryland Governor's Residence in Annapolis 
in the south wing of the U.S. Treasury Building in Washington. Construction on the site, along with West Fork River opposite downtown Weston, began in late 1858. Work was initially conducted by prison laborers, a local newspaper in November of that year noted, as the first arrivals for work on the project. Skilled stonemasons were later brought in from Germany and Ireland. Construction was interrupted by the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861. Following its succession from the United States, the government of Virginia demanded the return of the hospital's unused construction funds for its defense. Before this could occur, the 7th Ohio Volunteer Infantry seized the money from a local bank, delivering it to Wheeling. It was put towards the establishment of the recognized government of Virginia, which sided with the northern states during the war. The reorganized government appropriated money to resume construction in 1862. Following the admission of West Virginia, a U.S. state in 1863, the hospital was renamed the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. The first patients were admitted in October 1864, but construction continued into 1881. The 200-foot central clock tower was completed in 1871, and separate rooms for black people were completed in 1873. The hospital was intended to be self-sufficient, and a farm, dairy, waterworks, and cemetery were located on its grounds, which ultimately ultimately reached 666 acres in area. Back then, patients were admitted into the asylum for a variety of reasons, including asthma, laziness, egotism, domestic troubles, and even greediness. This led to an overwhelming number of patients being admitted, causing the asylum to face a shortage of staff and beds. A gas well was drilled on the hospital grounds in 1902. Its name was again changed to Weston State Hospital in 1913. Originally designed to house 250 patients in solitude, the hospital held 717 patients by 1880, 1,661 in 1938, over 1,800 in 1949, and at its peak, 2,600 patients in the 1950s in overcrowded conditions. A 1938 report by a survey committee organized by a group of North American medical organizations found that the hospital housed epileptics, alcoholics, drug addicts, and non-educable mental defectives. I'm sorry, I messed up that word among its population. A series of reports by the Charleston Gazette in 1949 found poor sanitation and insufficient furniture, lighting, and heating in much of the complex, while one wing, which had been rebuilt using Works Progress Administration funds following a 1935 fire started by a patient, was comparatively luxury luxurious. The lack of proper care and access to sanitation led to a large number of deaths in the asylum. While the official count of patients who have died in the asylum is not available, 
Historians have estimated the number to be between four and five hundred. Weston State Hospital found itself to be the home for the West Virginia Lobotomy Project in the early 1950s. This was an effort by the state of West Virginia and Walter Freeman to use a lobotomy to reduce the number of patients in asylums because there was a severe overcrowding. By the 1980s, the hospital had a reduced population due to changes in the treatment of mental illness. Those patients who could not be controlled were often locked in cages. In February 1986, then-Governor Arch Moore announced plans to build a new psychiatric facility elsewhere in the state and convert the Western Weston Hospital to a prison. Ultimately, the new facility, the William R. Sharp Jr. Hospital, was built in Weston and the old Weston State Hospital was simply closed in May of 1994. The building and its grounds have since been mostly vacant, aside from local events such as fairs, church revivals, and tours. In 1999, all four floors of the interior of the building were damaged by several city and county police officers playing paintball, three of whom were dismissed over the incident. Efforts towards adaptive reuse of the building have included proposals to convert the building into a Civil War museum and a hotel and golf course complex. A nonprofit organization, the Weston Hospital Revitalization Committee, was formed in 2000 for the purpose of aiding the preservation of the building and finding appropriate tenants. Three small museums devoted to military history, toys, and mental health were opened on the first floor of the main hospital's building in 2004, but were soon forced to close due to fire code violations. In October of 2007, a fall fest was held at the Weston State Hospital. Guided historic and paranormal daytime tours were offered as well as evening ghost hunts and paranormal tours. The main building of the asylum, known as the Kirkbride, holds several rooms that serve as a museum located on the first floor. There are paintings, poems, and drawings made by patients in the art therapy programs, a room dedicated to the different medical treatments and restraints used in the past, and artifacts such as a straitjacket and hydrotherapy tub. The tour guides dress in clothes that resemble 19th century nurse outfits, a blue dress, white apron, white cap, and white shoes. The shorter historical tour offer allows visitors to see the first floor of the Kirkbride, while the longer historical tour allows visitors to see all four floors, apartments of the staff, the morgue, and the operating room. Aside from the historical tours, there are also two paranormal tours. Both start as the sun sets. The shorter tour lasting around two to three hours and the longer tour being overnight with the option of having a private tour. And now we move on to some of the hauntings that have been reported inside the hospital. One of Trans Allegheny's more well-known ghosts is that of a little girl named Lily. It is believed that Lily was born and died within the walls of the asylum. She has haunted the building since and isn't shy to make herself known to staff and visitors. She is commonly reported 
paranormal activity by lilies included the holding of hands, tugging of clothing, giggling, the stealing of candy, and invisible games of ball. Look out for Lily on the first floor near her room. Another popular spirit that's been left trapped inside the asylum is that of Ruth. During her time while alive at the asylum, Ruth was an aggressive and at times violent older lady who had severe dislike towards men. It is common to encounter Ruth on the first floor near her old holding cell. Other reported ghosts include Dean, who is known to haunt the room that he was brutally murdered in, or that of a second floor where disembodied voices warn people to get out of a room where a double suicide occurred. That same floor is haunted by a stabbing victim who tugs on the pants of people walking by, as if using his last bit of strength to try and seek help. The doors are commonly left open by a dead nurse named Elizabeth, who is thought to still be doing her rounds. If that doesn't satiate your cravings for the paranormal, the geriatric ward and civil war wing of the hospital are also highly active. They still doesn't even begin to cover the stories of demonic entities and something maybe even freakier called the Creeper, as seen on the show Paranormal Lockdown. There's definitely a lot of paranormal activity going on inside this hospital. More that I can add in a future episode. But this really does sound like a creepy place that I would love to visit someday. Have any of you ever been there and gone on any paranormal tour? And maybe had any experience? I would love to hear about it and share your story in a future episode. Now our next story comes from yourghoststories.com and it's about a creepy yellow house. I have experienced many events that I believe to be paranormal throughout my life and I hesitated to write about this one because my memories of this house are very dark. I've tried to block them out over the years but I am unable to because I have such vivid memories of this house and my experiences inside of it. I have not been inside this house in more than 18 years, which was rented by the family of a close friend of mine from elementary school, who we will call Tim. Tim lived in this house with his family for two years, and I was a frequent visitor. When my parents were divorced and my mother was forced to work full-time, Tim's mother often watched me during the day in the summer of 2004, right around the time that they moved in. The first time that I visited Tim in the house was actually in December of 2003, the year he had moved in, when he had invited me to sleep over at his house. I remember that day very well. A huge snowstorm had just passed and left inches of thick white snow across my state. When we pulled up in front of Tim's house, I was immediately struck by the sensation that there was something off about the house. It was a two-story Cape Cod-style house, painted a sickly mustard yellow with a non-enclosed cement porch on the side of the house 
with two doors directly side by side, one leading into the living room and the other into the kitchen, which were located back to back in the house. The house was built around 1950 and was not that old, but it felt old to me at the time. As I walked up to the front door with my mom and rang the bell, I stepped into the house and I would soon understand just how deep that feeling of trepidation was. The second that you stepped through the front door, you were immediately overcome with this oppressive heaviness, this intense negative energy that followed you everywhere. It did not start out feeling like someone was following or watching you. That came later, but it was a terrible feeling that was unshakable. The inside of the house... <clears throat> was one sickly color or nauseating scent bleeding into another. Walking in the front door, right in front were stairs carpeted in the same sickly mustard color as the outside. The living room was to the left, a dark, dreary room with cream-colored walls gradually blackened by years of cigarette smoke. The living room connected with the kitchen in the back of the house, located directly behind it. This kitchen was painted a sickly lime green, which reminded me of the color of vomit, and connected to the kitchen and running behind the stairs and around the corner was a dark hallway, which contained a bathroom, an office, and the parents' bedroom. Every door in the house had framing that was dark brown and mismatched the colors of the walls. But nothing struck me more than the smell inside the house. Not just the smell of cigarette, which permeated the entire space, but this was different. The smell was a moldy, earthy, wet smell that during all the, the times I had been in the house made the idea of eating nearly impossible. It was enough to rid you of your appetite. The smell upstairs was even worse and was noticeable the second you began climbing the stairs. I have no idea what it was or even how to begin to describe it, but it permeated every space upstairs and felt like it was emanating from the depths of the house. It was a sharper, moldy smell that made you feel like you needed to sneeze. While these smells were likely not paranormal, they certainly contributed to the unshakable feeling of wrongness inside the house, and it would only get worse. That night, Tim and I had been playing in the snow and had come back inside while his parents were watching a movie in their bedroom. I remember us walking into the dark kitchen and seeing an old cuckoo clock on the wall and feeling like the second that I stepped into the kitchen from outside, there was something glaring at me from the back hallway. I could not see anything, but when I looked down the hallway, I got this intense headache and I felt dizzy. I tried not to think about it the rest of the evening, but I felt deeply uncomfortable. I remember little else about that particular evening, other than being afraid, for no reason obvious to me, of the downstairs hallway all night long. It just had this oppressive feeling, like when you stood in the kitchen looking down the hallway, or sat on the living room sofa, and you could see down the hall that it was full of negative energy. Tim had a dog, which refused to go down that hallway, and would always stop at the beginning of it, 
right near where the basement door was, and would just stand there. Nothing could entice him into the hallway, and this bothered Tim's parents, because their room was at the end of the hall, and they hoped that the dog would go into their room, but it never did. And that smell downstairs was strongest in the hallway, seemingly emerging from the basement. The next summer, I spent a lot of time in the house when Tim's mother would babysit me regularly when my mother was working. This is when the actual experiences began. One day, I was sitting in the kitchen at the table with Tim's mother and little sister, Jennifer, who must have been around six at the time. She turns to her mother and out of nowhere says, Mommy, I don't want to live here anymore. Her mother asked her why and her answer terrified me. She said, Mom, there is a shadow in the house. I see it all the time. It scares me, Mommy. I just saw it over there. And she pointed toward the hallway. My heart began racing, and I turned and looked down the hall. Immediately, every hair on my body stood on end, and I felt this heavy wave of resistance on my entire body. The hallway looked so dark and foreboding. I felt a presence in the hallway, but I could not see anything. But I knew that there was something there. Their mother got up, walked around the corner, and said, See, sweetie, there's nothing here. And she sat back down at the table. But the house did have a shadow, and I began seeing it myself. One night, I stayed over, and I was sleeping on the downstairs sofa, facing toward the door to the kitchen with full visibility into the creepy hallway. I remember waking up for no reason, and it was pitch black outside, but I could see just enough to know where things were located. Suddenly, I see a dark shadow glide from the kitchen down the hall and into the bathroom, and shortly after, the dog, which had been sleeping on the kitchen floor, stood at the start of the hallway and began growling aggressively, then slowly backing away into the kitchen. This absolutely terrified me. I covered my head with the covers and I struggled to get to sleep the rest of the night. The only bathroom in the house was located in that hallway and I refused to go to the bathroom all night even when I needed to and thankfully was able to make it until morning. There would be other times in the house when I would be sitting in the living room, the kitchen, or in one of the upstairs room, anywhere, and I would see movement out of the corner of my eye, with a dark flash just going by and then disappearing. Other times, I would actually see the shadow gliding out of one room and into another, or right past a person who had their back turned to it. By now, everyone had just tried to pretend that they did not see it and they would not speak of it, but everyone knew that it was there. I didn't, it did not have a face or a particular form, but it was of human height, just a partially see-through mass of darkness that glided around. I tried not to stare at it, and I certainly never followed it, but it would appear at random times and then just disappear. I always wondered where its lair was, where it was when, it, when we didn't see it, so I could avoid that place. Another time, I woke up to the blasting screech of the smoke alarm, followed by Tim's father running out of the bedroom from the hallway 
and into every room in the house to make sure that there was no fire. He then shouted from upstairs that there was no fire, and then he ran into the basement to check down there. Nervously, I followed him to the top of the stairs and stared down them. The basement stairs appeared to descend into complete darkness, with cobwebs everywhere and that stench of rotting wood. He shouted that there was no fire, but he could not get the sound of the smoke alarm to stop. He unscrewed them all from the ceiling and put them down on the counter, and they all finally stopped. That experience shook me. Another unnerving experience plagued me throughout that summer. One time, a group of our friends were at the house, having gone to a water park that day, and we all came back and were changing into our regular clothes. I was in a bathroom changing, and my friends were all outside in the hallway, waiting for it to be their turn. The door was locked, and I could hear everyone outside talking, when all of a sudden, the door just swung wide open. The knob did not turn. There was no attempt to push the door open. It just swung open, as if it had never been fully closed. I immediately grabbed a towel and I covered myself, and everyone just stood there shocked. No one knew what had happened. Another time, I got locked in that same bathroom, and I could not get out, which made no sense because the door locked from the inside, but the knob would not turn and I could not get the door open. Eventually, it just released itself and I was able to get out. This other time, I slept over and I woke up in the morning, not knowing what time it was. Normally by this time, people were up and awake, but this time, not a sound was heard. I went upstairs and Tim was not in his bed, and I knew that his sister was going to be at a friend's house that day. I went back downstairs and I sat on the sofa when I heard a noise in the bedroom that sounded like movement. I saw in the kitchen that it was 10 a.m. So I breathed a big sigh and I forced myself to go down the dark foreboding hallway and I knocked on the parents' door. I could hear movement that sounded like the closet door opening and closing, dresser drawers opening and closing, and people whispering but I could not hear what they were saying. I knocked on the door and suddenly all the sounds stopped. And then I heard the kitchen door open. Tim and his parents came into the kitchen and said, oh, you're finally woke up. We didn't want to wake you, you were so fast asleep. I immediately shouted that someone was in their room. Tim's father pushed past me, opened the door, and sure enough, no one was in there and nothing was out of place. Another event that puzzled me and freaked me out was that when we celebrated Tim's sister's birthday was that she could not blow out the candles. They were not those prank candles that no matter how many times you try, you just can't blow them out. So when she struggled to blow out the candles and kept blowing, they just would not go out. Everyone was shocked. The final time she tried, they almost entirely blew out but then the flame came back full force as if just lit, and then suddenly went out all at once. This was very unsettling. Soon after, both siblings began to have nightmares about the house catching on fire. Tim recalled one nightmare where he was in the living room and, un and unable to get out 
because a fire was engulfing the room and blocking all exits, and when he turned to run out of the curiously placed side door which led to the porch, it was not there. They moved out of the house later that year, and over time, Tim and I grew apart. I have not spoken to him in many, many years, but I have driven by that house, and every time I do, I get the same shivery feeling all over again. I do not know what had happened there, and I did not piece this together as a child, but looking back now, I suspect that it has something to do with fire, because of multiple events like the strange placement of the doors from the porch, the smoke alarm, the candles, and the nightmares, all pointed in that direction. Well, that is going to do it for today. First, uh, I do have to apologize for my voice. I'm not sure what happened. Um, it just right before I set out to record this episode, I just all of a sudden couldn't speak properly. So I do apologize for that. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Make sure to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. We're slowly growing on YouTube, but we are growing. As of this recording, I have the first 30 episodes on YouTube, and I'll be doing four more this weekend. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider helping to support the show by subscribing on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. There's currently eight bonus episodes up, with the next one due out this month. Once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep those doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>